Hey everybody, it is Justin Shackle welcoming you to episode 25 of Telling the Slab Pitching with David Cohn. It is the place for pitching every single week, and we do it with the five-time World Series champion, the Cy Young Award winner David Cohn, the research extraordinaire James Smythe, and myself. And guys, look, the exhibition games have begun, the big free agent signings, the trades, they've occurred, and well, we have a guest on with us this week that... If you are a Cubs fan or a Yankee fan or are really interested in what goes into modern coaching, game preparation, I think you are going to eat everything up from what Mike Borzello had to say. What do you think, David? Yes, it, it, there's a timeline uh, that coincides with his career that kind of explains uh, the changes in the game, especially the dynamic of analytics, the the Really, the each team has their own personal database, their proprietary information that they've built, and they guard it with great secrecy, state secrets. You know, they, they, God forbid that you give out any details on proprietary held data information. But Mike Borzello has a great understanding of that. He's educated himself along the way through the BAT system that was originally kind of the league-wide database system to now what he described as the Ivy system that they developed in in Chicago with the Cubs. So. Really interesting take by a guy who's been around a lot, been around some winning teams, a couple of World Series championship teams, and, and really understands the dynamic of the changes in the game over the last 20 years. And Mike has five World Series rings. He was the bullpen catcher for the Yankees during their late 90s run. He spent some time with the Dodgers as well, and then spent about a decade with the Cubs in various roles. I mean, he was a, a catching strategist then an associate pitching strategist. He really prepped the pitchers in Wrigleyville for uh, each game highlighted by that 2016 run to uh, end the curse with that World Series championship. And James, I thought you brought up a really good point, and it was so fun to listen to Mike's insight about the pressures of that 2016 team actually getting the job done because they were clearly viewed as one of the teams to beat in 2016 they had to deal with that pressure of maybe being a world series favorite and they were able to get it done and mike's insight there was was pretty cool right and it was interesting to hear him talk about how even within the team there was that pressure and even when things started to turn south in game seven you know here we go again and and things like that how that kind of narrative takes hold but uh you mentioned all the different hats that he wore with the cubs catching coach strategy coach assistant associate pitching coach I think Kyle Hendricks had the best name for him, Secret Weapon. Yeah. <laughs> so his his career kind of blends through eras, like you were saying, David. And some of the other things that we discussed with Mike, how he was catching Mariana Rivera when Mo discovered his cutter at the old Tiger Stadium. Also talking about coaching, advising different pitchers and their personalities, having to manage that, how he prepares for pitchers for a full series in the age of information where we're at now. And yeah, he touched on the, the Ivy database system with us when in his time with the Cubs, you just think about some of the pitchers that he's worked with. I mean, David Cohn, Mariana Rivera, Roger Clemens, Andy Pettit, Randy Johnson uh, with the Dodgers, Clayton Kershaw, uh, Kenley Jansen, and then Lackey, Lester, Hendricks, Arietta with the Cubs. He has had a, a remarkable coaching run and, and the evolution of his coaching game has really evolved. So we really, I, I hate speaking to hyperbole being like, man, you guys are going to love this interview. 
but this was super enjoyable and one of the best, in my opinion, uh, on Till in the Slab. All right, let's begin with the opener here this week. And guys, this was deemed as the offseason of the shortstop. It was a historic free agent class for shortstops. And the big guns are now all off the board. Trevor Story was the last one on Sunday, agreeing to a six-year deal with the Red Sox, $140 million. And ironically, it looks like he's going to be playing second base to form a pretty lethal double play combination with Xander Bogarts over at Fenway Park. If you do the math, there's over $880 million combined between the money that Story, Seager, Baez, Semyon, and Correa raked in in free agency. And I think the cool part is that teams like the Twins, the Tigers, the Rangers, obviously you have the Red Sox, but my point is some of the, the big blue bloods in the sport didn't really get involved and you're seeing different teams acquire star players. So true and well put, Shaq, and that is going to be the narrative moving forward. The Yankees needed a shortstop and they chose to sit out this one and, and not only sit it out, but you know, I worry that maybe they put some pressure on their young prospects. And that's not fair in my mind. Anthony Volpe has no bearing on the front office decision-making process. He's going to develop at his own pace. And then certainly Peraza as well. And some of the other shortstop prospects in the Yankee organization that, that moving forward that are going to at some point be asked to fill that spot. So it's going to be interesting, fair or not. Uh, this front office is going to be judged on that this decision-making uh, during this historical free agency where there was, you know, maybe the, the best free agent shortstop class of all time that, that were all available all at once. So yes, uh, moving forward, it's going to be interesting to follow this and see how it plays out. Um, the Yankees made their decisions. They made their trade. Uh, they're not done. Maybe they had some pitching before it's over, but I thought it was interesting that both DJ LeMayhew and Aaron Judge expressed uh, concern or dismay about Trevor Story's recent signing with the Red Sox, and for obvious reasons, because the Red Sox are are the Red Sox, and the Yankees and Red Sox make up uh, maybe the greatest sports rivalry of all time. So it's going to be another follow that Trevor Story is now in the American League East, and the American League East is a is a beast uh, to say the least right now. Well, the it's kind of a double whammy, right? Because Story, you have an opportunity at shortstop to add you know, a few wins at the shortstop position where the Yankees had a hole going into the offseason. And so not only do you not make a big splash, whether it's Correa, Story, Seager, whatever, now you're transferring wins from that could have gone to your team. Now they're going to your biggest rival. So they kind of dodged a bullet with Freddie Freeman in that same spot because he ended up going to the Dodgers. The, the rumors were that the Yankees, the Red Sox, the Blue Jays, even the Rays were in the mix on Freddie. The Yankees got lucky there that he went to the Dodgers. So it does. It's not the double hit where you're now swinging multiple wins going the other way. Now, with Story going to second base in Boston, that could be a real swing in the AL East race because everyone thinks that it's going to be pretty tight. Rays, Blue Jays, Red Sox, Yankees. A couple wins this way, a couple wins that way can really swing the division race. And one interesting thing with Story, a little parallel with Simeon, is that here's a guy who was a great shortstop. And he slides over to second base. Simeon handled it great. And uh, I think Story's going to have a big year in Boston, too. There is some trepidation about 
Story's arm, how it would hold up at shortstop. The Red Sox have him now, uh, presumably at second base, but it's also a, a pretty good insurance policy in the event that Xander Bogarts does opt out of his contract at the end of this season. It's possibly looking that it's going to be the likely scenario, given the type of cash that we've seen thrown towards some free agent shortstops this offseason. So it's a very good insurance policy. And we, you know, so some of the John Boy media crew, they were out at the, the Topps Bunhouse in Arizona last week. And when this free agent fever was hitting, the trades were going down. I, I was saying to people, man, I'm, I'm weary of the Red Sox making a big move. They're kind of in the weeds here, whether it would be James, like you mentioned, Freddie Freeman, maybe possibly even trading for, for Matt Olson, shoring up the first base position there, but also getting in on the Correa's or the stories. It turns out it's Trevor's story, but with Carlos Correa going to the twins, I know we're focusing here on the AL East. I think we've covered it. Guys, I'm, I've been pretty down on the AL Central in years past. This is a fascinating division heading into 2022, in my opinion. Well, it's a great point. And coming off of a, a new collective bargaining agreement that was just negotiated, a lot of talk about anti-competitive behavior or tanking or our teams, you know, putting their best foot forward. It's good for the sport that Minnesota put their best foot forward, even though they did some maneuvering and made a trade with the Yankees and freed up some of Donaldson's money. This was a team that kind of cratered last year. And at the trade deadline, they made some big trades and it looked like they were in a rebuilding mode, but no, they retooled in a hurry. That's good for the sport overall. You know, if you're a Yankee fan, you maybe you're not so happy with that, but you know, uh, Correa with the twins is good for the sport overall. And ha I'm happy for Minnesota. I'm happy for the twins fans. They deserve it. It's a great ballpark. It's a great city. It's gonna be interesting to see how this Minnesota twins team team plays this year. Most of the projections say they're still falling a little bit short, but you can't fault the effort, you know, to, to go that extra mile and sign Correa to that type of in, you know, ingenious contract uh, says a lot about their purpose right now. It's a fantastic short-term low-risk signing three-year deal for Correa and chances are if Correa comes out and stays healthy or has a normal Correa season he's going to opt out next winter and he'll get another bite at the Apple in free agency and we might all be right back here uh, talking about another uh, great shortstop hitting free agency. I don't know if this is quite enough to get them right there with the White Sox but it's close enough where this at least puts them back into playoff contention and even the Tigers are an interesting team. Again, maybe they're not quite ready to make the leap and contend for a division title, but they were flirting with 500 for, uh, for some time last year. And they, they look like they made some additions with Eduardo Rodriguez and Javier Baez. Maybe they can take another step and make uh, the Central a little more competitive. I'm giving love to the Royals, too. I mean, they have that young core. They traded for Amir Garrett. They signed Zach Greinke. They're going to have some good... <laughs> veteran leadership to kind of shepherd the young guns that they have in the rotation that they hope pan out. So I don't think there's going to be too many pushovers in the AL central, like we've seen in recent years past, I was going to get to Mike Borzello, but I wanted to ask you this, David, because James brought up the, the short term contract and the opportunity that was kind of presented to the twins with Carlos Correa. A lot of people are saying, Hey, any team could have done that deal with Carlos Correa why didn't they do you think that opportunity would have been realistic for any team 
it's still a very high average annual value. It's still depending on the, each individual team's budget. You're, you're adding 35 million to, to even on a one-year basis to, to the top line. So, you know, that, that varies from team to team, but it just shows you the nature of pre-lockout and post-lockout. Pre-lockout, Seager gets 300 plus million, 300 and a quarter million uh, just to sign in Texas. Simeon too, they moved quickly. And then after the lockout, we talked about it here on Toe in the Slab that when things are rushed, sometimes mistakes can be made on both the player side, the agent side and front office side. So it remains to be seen. Uh, it's hard to say. You know, at the end of the day, which teams could have taken it, which teams, uh, you know, couldn't have fit it in. I would say the vast majority of teams could have fit that in if they think that he's he's the type of guy that can push you, push you right over the edge and become a contender. And he is that good. I think his numbers speak for itself, uh, speaks for themselves. And he is a game changer without a doubt. A 27 year old, probably the best shortstop in the game right now. Uh, that's going to make a difference on anybody's team. So plus 35 million on the top line. Yeah. There's a lot of large market teams that could have done that. All right. Speaking of changing the game, we were able to talk to one of the guys that pretty much transcended or had a heavy hand in transcending the Cubs organization from a last place club to breaking the curse and winning the world series in 1996. There was a whole lot that preceded that Borzello was there when, like we mentioned, Mo refined his cutter in 96. He was there preparing the pitching staff of the last dynasty that we've seen in baseball. He worked with young stars in L.A. like Clayton Kershaw, like Kenley Jansen, and part of turning the Cubs into champions with John Lester, Kyle Hendricks, Jake Arrieta, working under Theo Epstein. whole lot of insight coming up here with our guest this week on Towing the Slab, pitching with David Cohn. It is Mike Borzello. Mike, thanks so much for joining us on this week's episode. And look, let's break the ice with what we all want to know here right out of the bat. What is your best David Cohn story? And just to set the bar for you here, we had your godfather, Joe Torreon, and he talked about David throwing an ashtray against his Mickey Mantle pitcher in the uh, manager's office at Old Yankee Stadium while uh, smoking a cigarette after a bad outing. So if you can establish a new watermark for us here, by all means, this is the floor is yours. Um, Coney, where can I go with this? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> the problem uh, is we can't really tell the truth now, can we? Right. <laughs> um, I have three or four on the top of my head, but um, if we're just talking about at the field, um, I it's more of it's more of the the meeting we had, Coney, in, in Seattle, if you remember, we had, we had, yes, uh, very much. Yes. You guys had prior to me getting there, you guys had lost in 95 and, um, in a tough series to the Mariners and Mariners seemed to always find a way to beat the Yankees. And it hadn't changed even once I got there. I mean, somehow it didn't matter if we were up three in the ninth, it seemed like they found a way to beat us. And there was one game where they scored, they were beating us by like 10 and one of their young kids scored a run and over celebrated at that point of the game and, and really rubbed it in our faces. And we had a meeting after the game that Joe Torrey called and Coney took the you know, center stage on it. And it was, 
I mean, it grabbed everybody's attention. And I, I mean, I, I don't know our record after that versus Seattle, but everyone took what he said to heart. It was early on in my career. So I was like, wow. And to this day, I've never seen a starting pitcher kind of be the leader of a team. And that was really, really something that stayed with me. And I'm sure everyone who was in that room remembers that that speech. And Coney, you said, I remember the one line was, hey, I left a vein on that mound. Do you remember saying that? Yes, I do. Yeah, it was the beginning of my aneurysm. Yeah. yeah, we're not going to put up with this anymore. This guy's celebrating right in front of our dugout. And I mean, it really motivated us going forward. That was, that's my number one at the field, David Cohn story. All right, we'll <laughs> keep it in the ballpark for sure. <laughs> right. Yeah. right. D- David, what did Mike mean when you talk about the fabric of the last dynasty in baseball with those Yankee championship seasons of the 90s? Well, it's, I think, you know, people talk about the pivot, you know, from Buck Showalter, you know, Mike's uh, Borzy's referring to, you know, that dramatic loss in 95 before Borzy was there, before Joe Torre was there and that dramatic turn. And, it, you know, I'm happy to see Buck Showalter get another chance again in New York with the Mets on, on that side of town, because, you know, whether it was right or wrong, whatever happened in that series, he was fired. And then, and Joe Torrey was brought in and Joe was the perfect guy at the perfect time. You know, it just worked. Uh, he dealt with George Steinbrenner so well, you know, Mike knows Joe Torrey very well, spent a lot of time with him and Joe's his God- godfather. He's the godson of Joe, to- uh, Joe Torrey. So you know, Borzy knows what I'm talking about there, that there was a calmness, a steadiness about Joe Torre that was Johnny on the spot. It is exactly what we needed at that point. And that's what ushered in that, that uh, mini dynasty we had there, four out of five years. And, you know, Borzy's got four of those rings. I got four of those rings. So that's something I think that we, you know, even though you talk about the 90s being a little bit ancient nowadays compared to the, the game and what's going on. And that's why I love having Borzy on because he, he's the bridge guy for me. He's going to explain what it was like beforehand and what it was like all the way through the Cubs uh, championship season and, and the, you know, the, the changes in the preparation for the game, the game planning, the technology, everything that goes into it. But Joe Torre was the right guy at the right time back in 1996. Yeah, there's a whole lot of ground to cover because Mike was there for all the championships. Like you said, he spent it, basically he was there for Joe's entire time in New York, then went to L.A. with him and then for a decade saw the Cubs go from a last place team to world champions and was there all the way up until 2021. So there's a lot of ground to cover here, but Mike, I want to start off with a couple of questions, I guess, with your time with the Yankees, because from what anyone could read about you, you're kind of described as maybe the Forrest Gump of baseball over the last 30 years or so, you're kind of always on the edge of the picture. That was a phrase that I read about you, but there are stories that you were the catcher for Mariano Rivera when he was in the bullpen discovering his cutter. What happened there with the greatest closer of all time? So this story I've probably told a thousand times, but it's, it's all accidental. The, the, the cutter showed up, by the grace of God, we were in Detroit and, you know, we're going back now. People don't remember Mariano was kind of a failed starter, right? And, and had a four seam average at best slider, bad changeup mix. 
that that was who he was and um you know he had that great series in 95 tony talked about versus seattle and kind of put himself on the map and then the following year i showed up and he was a reliever and still unheralded nobody really knew him and it was basically four seam uh and an occasional slider for show like not really in the zone and then back to the four seamer but he could dot his four seamer he could elevate it um so i mean the command of it made it like he had four different fastballs just because he could put it where he wanted and then we went to um we went through that whole year um 96 he was that way 97 as the closer he took over for wetland he was that way and then we were in detroit and he's warming up in the old Detroit stadium. He's on, we're on the field and he starts warming up and I've caught Mo a hundred times at this point and he lets one go and it cuts at the end, um, you know, like a foot. And I'm like, I think the ball's scuffed. He looks at me. He has, he's never thrown a, a cutter before at the time. I don't even think that was a pitch to be honest with you. I, I think that pitch has been created since, Mariano threw it um and I remember he couldn't straighten the ball out we're trying to straighten it out to be honest with you we're trying to he couldn't command it so he said you know whatever and he went in the game wound up saving the game and after he was in a panic about not being able to to throw the ball where he wanted because the movement was now you know he didn't he'd never dealt with it before so the next day we went out with Mel Stottlemyre um our old pitching coach and we were trying to literally straighten out this fastball he's throwing that was had late cut and we couldn't do it. And the rest is history. I mean, he, he learned how to, to command it, to use it to all four quadrants, to blow up bats on left-handed bats, like no one's ever seen. I mean, but it all happened one day in Detroit and uh, and we never looked back, but I remember we tried to fix that pitch and get back to what it, it was prior to. Just remarkable. You know, it really is. I mean, uh, you know, you've caught so many pitchers over the years, Borzi, and then, you know, you evolved. I mean, you were more than a bullpen catcher. You became sort of a, you were always kind of a coach. You were, you were somebody I went to back in the nineties to talk about strategy before the game. Uh, you were somebody that a lot of the hitters talked to over the years. And I know that evolved in your job title. Now we have all sorts of coaches and job titles. You almost create a new one every year, right. but you always were a strategic type of a coach. And I know that that's kind of evolved for you through the, through the tour years. Can you just, you know, take us back? I know, you know, just a little bit of your beginning. Now you're a minor league player with the Cardinals came out. Uh, Tory got you to the Yankees went to the Dodgers there and then the Cubs. Can you tell us a little bit about your personal history, your story along the way? Yeah. I mean, I played in the minor leagues. I knew I wasn't going anywhere. Um, I could catch, I couldn't hit. And I knew that from the start, but I knew I wanted to be in the game. I love the game. It's all I ever knew. My dad basically force fed baseball on me since I was born. So bat boy too, uh, right? Braves bat boy. Yeah, bad back. Boy, yeah, for one of the greatest brawls in the history of baseball, <laughs> yeah. if you've ever seen it, versus the Padres. Yes. I was there. Yeah. Back to the Forrest Gump reference. Um, but 
I, you know, I, I, I stalled out, which was fine. And I wanted to stay in the game and I actually was done. I didn't, there was no job for me. And Joe Torrey got the job with the Yankees and he never had called me or anything to ask me if I wanted to stay in the game. At that point, I thought, you know what, I'm going to do something else. Um, and then I got a call from Bob Watson, who was the GM at the time. And apparently you guys had, in the middle of spring training, fired a, a bullpen catcher. Someone was let go. And it had, you know, now they were scrambling to find somebody to do this job. So Joe said to Bob Watson, well, I have Mike Borzello if you want to call him. I don't know if he'll be interested or not. And he called me and I came down. I had to pay my own way. Bob Watson said, listen, it's kind of a tryout. Um, this was a reference and we'll see how it goes. I, I can't promise you anything. And I wound up coming and, and, uh, and it all worked out. They had me catch and throw BP and hit fungos and all that stuff. And, um, and Mark Newman, the old, uh, the minor league coordinator for the Yankees and Gary Tuck, they were the ones kind of deciding if I stay or go. They voted yes. So that was it. That's how I got the job. That's how it all started. Then once I was there, Tony, it was like, you know, you're in awe at first because of, of all of you guys. It's kind of like this backstage pass that you have. So, you, you know, back then you kept quiet. It's different than today's game. I didn't say much. So I just sat in my locker. If you needed to go throw or throw aside or whatever, or go watch high eight video, which is what we had at the time, I'm there. I was always there and available, but I didn't speak really. And then as you become more comfortable and you guys start asking questions like in a side or after a game or, you know, start to question yourself and you kind of lean in on me because I'm with you all the time. Then you start to realize you have a place, you know, in the game or on the team that you matter other than just catching the ball and, and throwing it back, you know? Um, and that's how it really evolved and started. It was, it was kind of finding my way that way, but doing it, you know, strategically kind of staying out of the way, you know, when you have that, that low man on the totem pole position, you don't want to get in anybody's way. You want to learn, learn how it all, how it works. And, and that was how it started. Um, and then, yeah, catching you and rocket and boomer um, and just learning by osmosis being with Mel Stottlemyre. I mean, my goal was to gather as much information and learn from you guys and each guy taught me a different thing, you know, like you taught me just about like the number one thing you, I learned from you was how to manage a game as a pitcher, like how to strategically decide who you're pitching to. I don't have to pitch to this guy. I can work around him. I know where the outs are in the lineup. So I learned by watching you, I learned that. Uh, El Duque watching he taught me a lot about sequencing and how to put pitches together. Um, and we would sit and talk about it all the time. He loved to talk pitching. Um, and he was a master, you know, he had everything. He could do everything with the ball. Uh, and then Mike Messina and Boomer, like Moose taught me like a plan B, like when you don't have your stuff, 
You know, how, what do you do? How do you react as a pitcher? Do we stay with the plan we went with that I can't execute today? Or do we go plan B, go another direction and, and find a way? Boomer, same thing. I remember Boomer warming up at times. He didn't have his curveball. And, you know, Boomer, he'd go, fuck it. Let's go. And he'd go fastball change up that day and a cutter. Just make it up, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, that, just that's how my career started was with you guys, you know? And Mel, Mel Stottlemyre, I give him so much credit. He allowed me to be a part of it. Really, you know, that's not always the case. Right. Well, you know, we saw your career really evolve as you, you went with Tori to the Dodgers. And, you know, you, at this point, the, you know, the technology is starting to come into the game. Right. I mean, you, 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 what you're referring to in the 90s was just the old written scouting reports from advanced scouts. And you, you didn't know, you know, how much how much credence to put in some of those reports. And that's not being demeaning to the to the scouts at the time. But there was only so much you could glean out of some of those written reports. And now here you are and, you know, you're with the Dodgers, you're seeing some of the technology come into the game. This is pre-Cubs years. And can, can you, just in your words, can you tell me the changes you've seen in the preparation before the games, the advancement of technology, and how's, how's that, how that has changed the modern pitcher nowadays? Yeah, absolutely. Um, when I was with the Yankees, like I said, it was, remember we had high eight tapes and the video guy, Charlie Wands, would like splice them together so you guys could watch a hitter every at bat he had, but it was like archaic, you know, it's hard to do. A lot of guys said, screw it. I'm not, whatever. I'll do my own thing. It just was a pain in the ass. And then when I left and went to the Dodgers, the bat system, the advent of, of databases started coming into play. And there was the, the bat system, which was basically the, for people that don't know this system that had, Every, everything that happens in a baseball game is, is logged into this system and you can access it. So if there's a hitter, I want to look up Joey Votto, I can look up every pitch he's ever seen versus right versus left and click on it and watch the video. It, it, it was groundbreaking, like, but a lot of people weren't using it. It was there, it was accessible, but players were never really introduced to it. So they didn't know how to use it. So that's where I kind of went. I went and learned how to, to bounce around on that. Um, and lucky enough, when I got to the Dodgers, Brad Ausmus wound up coming to the Dodgers to be the backup catcher. And Brad, as you know, was longtime catcher with, with the Astros very smart, cerebral catcher. Um, and he kind of introduced me to his system of game planning and scouting reports. And he showed me how he does it and how he puts it into uh, layman's terms or baseball terms for everyone to understand. Um, and I basically hijacked his system when I was there and, and took it you know, to my other, another level, kind of like what the advent of, of information just kept getting better and better and better. So it made it, and you could work quicker and quicker. Um, and you can put together game plans and scouting reports um, a lot faster. And 
that's how it all started. It was Brad Osmus for me that really got me to understand how how all this information works, how to con uh, to bring it together, like and present it. You have to be able to present information. If you you could have all the information you want, if if you're not able to present it to someone and get them to understand it, it's it becomes worthless. So that's that's where it started uh, with the Dodgers in 2009 or, or 10, I don't, whatever year it was. And it, you know, that the information, as you said, Coney, just, it keeps getting more accessible. Um, and we're, we're teaching pitchers differently. Everything is done completely different than it was in the nineties. Um, a lot of it's really, really good. Some of it is maybe not so good. I mean, maybe we've gone too far at times, but I mean, there's, there's with information, it's all about presentation. And, and again, at first, when I started first doing scouting reports and game planning, even pitchers were kind of pushing you back. Like, ah, I'm just going to do what I do, you know? And you're like, well, I get it, but I'm telling you, this stuff can help you. It's going to help you if you know the hitter you're facing. It's going to help you if you know his strengths, his weaknesses, what he's trying to do, his approach. It's going to benefit you. But it was a hard sell on a lot of guys, especially early on. Mike, can you give us an example on how to simplify a piece of pitching information and present it to a pitcher? Oh, yeah. Um, so a game plan or scouting report, would take probably six or seven hours to, to put together for a series. I'll start with that. It's, it's um, you're dissecting every single hitter. And you're, you know, the, the stuff I did was count specific. Um, you're looking at trying to figure out this guy's approach if he has one. Some guys don't, some guys just stay out of a specific swing path and you'll be fine. You know, other guys have an approach. The really good hitters in the league have a plan of what they're trying to do, where they're looking, what they're trying to swing at, what they're not swinging at. So you can break all that down and figure out who this hitter is and where the danger zones are and, and, and how to attack this guy. But you have to now condense all that information to be able to present it not only to a pitcher, but your entire staff. So your entire staff has to understand your language. And you're talking about all different walks of life that's, you know, are on a staff usually that speak all different languages that, that may not understand the verbiage or the lingo. So we, my goal was to always get everyone in the room to understand what I was trying to present because like I said, if, you, if you're not reaching people with the information, the information is irrelevant. So, you know, I have to be able to get the, the Spanish-speaking guys to understand what I'm saying, as, as well as you, Darvish, who I've had. Like, it, it's, it's challenging, but the one thing you learn is everyone speaks the language of baseball in some form. So they understand in time what you're trying to say 
but you condense all this information, you put it together and you, sh you show it to guys and then they kind of sort through it and figure out how it specifically applies to them. That's the best way I can put it. Does that get more difficult in the last few years as pitching staffs have exploded? Now it used to be a big deal when you had an 11 or 12 man pitching staff. Now it's 13 and 14 plus you're getting more guys shuttling up and down between the minor leagues. Is it harder to kind of get everyone on the same page in that way? At times, because you, you have every time a kid comes up, you know, or someone comes from another team, you have to introduce them to your system. Cause I assuming that the system was different elsewhere, you know, everyone does things differently. Um, so that can be challenging for sure. Um, but, you know, half the staff, you know, there, there's a difference. There's in baseball, there's still starters and relievers, right? So you have starters that usually have a four pitch mix, maybe five that are looking to get hitters out multiple times, right? So they're going to hopefully face a guy three times and they may need to get that guy out three different ways. Um, relievers are usually plus stuff, two pitch, um, max effort guys that are going to lean more on their strengths than they are a scouting report. They, they should know the information, but when in doubt, most of them are, are two pitch guys that are coming out for one look on a hitter and it's me versus you. And I might be going my strength versus you is the same as your strength as a hitter, but I don't care, you know? So, you know, there's two different types of pitchers. So scouting reports and game plans apply to people differently based on who you are. You know, a starter, like I said, may, may show you something the first at bat and the next at bat, you're seeing a completely different mix. Um, you know, and, and with a reliever, you know, as they can look at a scouting report and know at least where the damage is, the guy that's going to, where is this guy going to hurt me? If I throw a ball in a specific spot, where, where is that, where he's going to do damage? I got to stay out of there. That might be all they need to know. You know what I mean? Other than that, they're coming at you with their four seam put away slider. I mean, that's what, what the game really has become. I mean, just a bunch of power arms that are full throttle coming at you. And that's, that's great. You know, it's, it's great for one look. It's a, but you know, then you have to deal with starters who are, you know, I still believe starters that have a full mix should be able to, to get through a lineup three times. That kind of brings us to the Cub years. You know, you, you lasted, it seems like you were really well prepared to go to the Cubs, you know, your Yankee experience and then the Dodger experience. And now all of a sudden you're going to outlast five managers with the Cubs. You had a long run there and in uh, advanced technology, obviously a front office that embraced it. Um, a lot of great pitchers there, a world series championship there, pretty remarkable and broke, broke the curse of the Billy goat. Like tell us about the Cubs. What was different about the Cubs? I know John Lester, we had on last week, talked about, you and him banging heads at first a little bit. And then he finally opened up and listened to you as a veteran pitcher who needed to make adjustments, but was stubborn. You know, what, what was that whole, uh, you know, philosophy with the Cubs and, and, and their program like there? I, 
think Theo Epstein is 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 the guy that made you buy in and believe in in this mission we were all going on from the day I got there I mean it was it was impressive to see this guy that I had heard of with Boston and you know the the all the saber metrics or whatever data that this guy was all into but it wasn't about that it was more about his leadership ability I mean he made he makes everybody feel important and he had a line that he said one time that culminates like my entire time there was like he said if everyone in this room and we had the entire organization from minor leagues all the way up coaches scouts everyone if everyone is the best at doing their job and better than the other 29 teams whatever it is your job is if you're the best one at it we're going to get where we want to go and i thought wow okay so now no matter what job you have you felt like okay i'm a piece to this and i can't let the rest of these people down in this room we're all one and we're on a mission to try and win a championship here that was how it all started for me and i was you know, you want to run through a wall. You want to you you want to do everything because Theo, Theo got you fired up and made everyone accountable. He wanted your opinion. He's really good at gathering information, but gathering opinions. He's not offended if you don't agree with him. He wants to hear why you don't, and he processes. And then ultimately, of course, he makes the decision. But he doesn't want you to agree with him just because he's the president, you know, and I always thought that was special that that's not always the case either. Um, so he, he's, he's, he likes to argue. He wants to battle you. He wants to hear why. Um, so that was the start. And then when I got there again, it was still premature to all the information we have now. I mean, believe it or not, that was 2012. And we were still all working off the bat system. And then Theo decided, you know what? I'm gonna hire people to, to build our own database. And I don't know where he found them, but he went to the Ivy League and found a bunch of guys that created this incredible um, database and they called it Ivy. And you talk about taking it to another level, like. This had everything. Bats was great, but this was like bats on steroids. And anything you wanted added or changed, they wanted, they wanted feedback. They wanted to know like, how, does this make sense? Everything was in there. I mean, no matter what you wanted to look up, defense, um, at bats, pitching, um, mechanical change, everything was on there. And at, at that time, that was groundbreaking. No one, no one really had that. Uh, your own in-house database that had everything. And it made it really easy for, for guys like me to navigate through and, and gather information at such a faster rate. And I mean, it, it, that, was, that was another huge moment like where the information is now accessible to the entire organization. So everyone's a part of it. Um, before, you know, I'm working on the bat system. 
but no one else is, you know, no, you know, a couple players may look at it, but not really. This now invited everybody into the room because everyone had access to, to Ivy. And that's how it all started um, with the Cubs. And then, yeah, I mean, they went out and got the, the right mix, the right players. And um, my system was in place even through the couple losing years we had um, the system was being put in place from 2012, 13 and 14 until 15, which is when we knew we were good. We knew guys, the minor league guys, you know, Chris Bryant and hobby and Addison Russell and Schwarber were all starting to arrive at the same time. And we signed John Lester, you know, I mean, and David Ross coming with him, you know, his leadership ability. So, I mean, it seems like it, it happened so fast. Um, we got good faster than we thought, to be honest. Uh, 15, we were, we were early to the dance, I think. We impressed people. John, John was great. We beat the Cardinals in the playoffs. Um, a team that had just annihilated us for years. Um, and that was kind of our world series that year, beating the Cardinals. And then, um, then we lost to the Mets. They killed us, uh, four straight and we were out, but we knew we were, we were ready. And the following year you saw, you know, 2016, unbelievable. That had to be incredible. That feeling, you know, they did like you see in grown grown men crying in the stands at Wrigley, you know, I mean, when that happened championships, I mean, you felt it with the 96 Yankees, surely. Uh, but that one, wow. I mean, it's generational. Yeah, that had to feel that had all the feels rather, I'm sure for, for anybody involved. Yeah. I was happy that I was there from, from 12, 13, 14, 15, and then there for 16, because I got to appreciate, you know, the cub fan, the losing because we did lose a hundred games, I think in 12 and 13. So I was part of that, you know, the, the lovable loser, you know, type of, of thing that goes on at Wrigley fans still come out. They still have a good time, but I mean, the, yeah, when we won seeing people going to their grandfather's gravesite or father, you know, mother's gravesite and, putting the Cubs banner or listening to the game with their deceased uh, family member. I mean, what, how do you even describe that? How, how deep rooted this passion is. And I mean, 108 years, you know, that it took to, to get one and all the heartbreak along the way, it wasn't just that you didn't win one. They were so close to, you know, so many times that it just didn't work out, but, I mean, I, 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 that, those, that, the, when we beat the, and it still gets me going, like beating the Indians in that dramatic game seven. Um, I mean, how do you, I, I don't know how to describe it. How did you handle the pressure? You have an ascendant team in 2015, 2016, you steamroll most of the league and you go on this playoff run. Coney, you've talked about, the pressure in 98 where a, a record setting team you have 
the number one team in baseball all through the year. And then you feel like you have to cash it in or else it all goes out the window. Was it something similar like that in 2016 when you had absolutely the best team in baseball, but you had to make sure you still brought it home in what can really be a random short series? Right. Yeah, there's definitely relief at the end of, of winning that championship because, you know, not that you pay attention to the curse or things like that, but still in the back of your mind a little that, you know, things always seem to, to go wrong. And we did have the best team, um, but we were still really young. So, you know, we had a lot of position players that still were a little raw and, you know, still growing up as players. The lucky part was our pitching staff was built on veteran starters and they were able to handle the moments, you know, cause you're always going to go through some, some bad moments in the postseason, and it's how you react to them because they're inevitable. Um, and when you lack experience, you usually let those moments get the best of you. When you have pitchers like Lester, John Lackey, Jake Arietta, guys like that, who can handle, handle the moment that, that I think was the key to, to us winning that championship. Um, you know, th those guys, our pitching staff, I don't think a guy, one of our starters missed a start that year, which is unheard of too. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's true. If, if it's not, it's close. Um, so you have these, our five man rotation going out there every day and they were, they were the reason I think that we were able to pull it off. I mean, even in game seven, you saw, we went Kyle Hendricks started it and John Lester came in in relief. Um, Arietta and Lackey were out in the bullpen and, and declared themselves available too. Jake had just pitched the day before uh, six innings. Um, so I think that was the key to that year. The, the veteran leadership of our, uh, our starting rotation and, and David Ross and Miguel Montero, guys like that, that were able to, to keep calm, you know, in the, in the toughest moments when, you know, sometimes our younger core um, could get overwhelmed, you know? So I think that was the key to the whole thing and how it all worked. And of course, Joe Madden was the, you know, was the perfect manager for, for that whole thing. You know, just his whole demeanor. You mentioned the continuity with the starting staff. So here's the 2016 team. John Lester, 32 starts. Arietta, 31 starts. 30 apiece from Kyle Hendricks and Jason Hamill, 29 from Lackey. So those guys really were the, the bedrock on that pitching staff. I mean, uh, and you know what's weird about that is I don't, I don't even know the average innings per start for our rotation, but I feel like it. It, it's it's over six innings where in today's game you're not seeing that anymore there you know it's it's built from back to front a lot so the bullpen is 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 called on a lot more um and this is only what five six years later that how much the game has changed Coney keeps talking about the game changing that that's certainly something that has changed um we were leaning on our starters our starters were our guys, you know, and we did have a good bullpen, but we didn't overuse them, which made them 
effective when, when necessary. So we had Pedro Strope and Hector Rondon and Aroldis Chapman. Uh, we traded for, you know, with the Yankees, we got him for, for Glaber Torres. So um, we had a good bullpen, uh, but we, we leaned on our starters. They, they were capable. None of those guys wanted to come out of a game. Um, you know, you don't, they're not conditioned to be that way anymore. That was kind of the end of an era. You know, pitchers know now that two times through the order is the thing and, and they'll hand the ball over because they know that's, that's the strategy and that's the, the theory. Back then, you had to wrestle a ball away from John Lackey. I mean, you're going to fight him if you try to take him out just because he's gone two times through the order. Um, John Lester the same way. So, you know, it, it might have been the end of, of that style of baseball where, you know, you, you went heavy starter and limited your relievers to hold, hopefully only having to pitch two innings. Like you've been, you've self-described yourself as being the low man on the totem pole with the Yankees all the way through to being an instrumental part in preparing a team for individual series. So you have gradually built up a fantastic coaching career. What do you want to do next? Oh, I don't know. I, that's a good question. Uh, you never get tired of winning. So anytime there's an opportunity to be part of a team in some capacity that that has a chance to win. I mean, I'm all for that. Uh, kind of a jack of all trades. I can kind of adapt to whatever's necessary, but it's, it's always been about winning. So, you know, I, Tony talked about the, the rings and lucky to have been a part of five championship teams and gone to seven world series. And um, I, I, I don't know. It's, it's, but yeah, I want to, I want a six championship as much as I wanted to be part of, of the first one. So I don't know. I don't know that how to answer that, but being a, a part of a winner, some, in some capacity, you know, that, that would be it. Um, the job title, you know, is, is not really relevant. It's more about being with a group that has a chance to do something special and, because every time that happens, it is, it's euphoric. There's no way to describe it, you know, um, that, that, that's it. I guess be part of another winner. I love it. Um, you know, we, we, we always have this feature, I guess, at the end of every interview with a guest where we give you a chance to ask something to an upcoming guest of the podcast. But first we're you know, going to have a question that someone posed to you. And now's the time that we're going to relay that here. So we have a question for you before you have a question for an upcoming guest. And this comes from a young pitcher who has the potential of, of being an important piece of the Yankees pitching staff this season. It's uh, it's right-hander Michael King. We kind of prefaced it saying, hey, bullpen catchers pretty much know everything that's going on with the pitching staff. And that sort of just triggered him. So here's what Michael King had for you, Mike. So this is something that has ran through my mind a ton. There are so many different routines of relievers, especially. Um, obviously, Chapman as a, as a 
ninth inning guy will come out in the sixth or seventh inning and he does a ton of stuff inside. And then when he comes out, he doesn't have to do as much. So he, he does a little bit of a warm up and then he throws his way to ball. But there are all the guys that are there in the bullpen the whole game. Some of them sit for seven, eight innings, whatever it is, and then go out there and can still throw 100 miles an hour. Some of them are moving the whole time. I would love to know the elite relievers that he's caught what their routines are because I almost have uh, like a, a theory of relievers that are in the league for 10 plus years, whatever they, they get a ton of time are one of the more act, like the most active people in the bullpen. Um, and, and so I, I would love to know if there were any like a, a Mariano or a, a, an elite reliever that just sat there the whole time. And we, cause in the bullpen, we talk about that a ton like, oh, so-and-so has sat for six innings straight now. He hasn't even stood up to pee yet. And, and then all of a sudden he gets called. And I, I kind of took Chad Green's uh, philosophy or routine of getting up in the second and third inning, getting up in the fifth inning, get, like, getting up in the seventh inning again. And I want to know if there are elite believers that are able to just sit there the whole time. I haven't experienced that. Uh, the elite relievers for me, have a routine um i'll use mariano as the example for the 12 years i was with him um mariano would come out after the fifth inning and he had already got his massage or whatever and he one thing about mo is he he watched the game inside so he knew everything that was going on he'd come out after the fifth he'd sit down next to me um we'd watch an inning of the game and then he would get up and start stretching. Um, so after the, the sixth inning, he's stretching. Uh, he's got his weighted ball. He did the same routine every day. Um, and then he, once he was done with that and this, the seventh inning came around, he was, he was lathered up and ready. Um, as we know, Mariano had a lot of two-inning saves. Uh, so he had to be ready at, you know, a, a moment's notice on uh, Joe Torrey, you know, in 96, especially would summon Mo before he was even a closer at any time. Um, there was no role. So Mo had to be ready and on call. Um, but no, I have not seen elite relievers that don't have some sort of routine that incorporates moving around or, or, you know, doing something and just sitting there. I'm sure they exist, but, uh, but I haven't crossed paths with them. No, no secret sauce. Just no. excellent. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're mostly, there's a routine of some sort from, from all the great ones I've been around. Yeah. All right. Here's the name of an upcoming guest that you're going to be able to ask a question to. It is the consent top pitching prospect in the game right now right-hander Grayson Rodriguez of the Baltimore Orioles what would you ask someone that kind of has that much hype and is pretty close to reaching the big leagues here Ooh, what would I ask him um geez I would say I mean I didn't have a lot of things to tell him what would I ask him um what is what is his main goal going forward as a pitcher? Is it 
personal success? Is it winning? Is it money? Is it all of it? What motivates him? And everyone's different. Everyone's going to give you the stock line. Oh, I want to win. But for everyone, it's a different answer. So what makes this guy wake up in the morning and bust his ass and work hard? What is the number one thing that he focuses on? That's what I would ask him. And how old is he? I believe he's 24. Okay. Uh, let, me, let me fact check that really quick. He's 22. 22? Okay. Thought provoking. You know, really is. I mean, yeah, it's everyone has a, a different thing that they're chasing. So it's, you know, there's nothing wrong with saying, you know, for me, one of the best days of my career is when I won my first arbitration case and I made over a million dollars. That was a big deal because I could retire my father from, from the graveyard shift at the meatpacking plant. So there's nothing wrong with that. Right. Nothing wrong with having that as a motivating factor. That, was the greatest days, that, that call I had to my dad, shut it down. I got you. I got your back. That was, that was the best ever. Exactly. And plus if, if you get, if you achieve some sort of financial stability, it now can allow you to relax and take your focus on other things, which can be, I can, I can relax more. I can, now it's all about winning, you know, everyone's different, but yeah, I don't think there's any shame in saying, you know, I'm, I'm trying to, to make a living here. Trying to so, take care of my family. Yeah, that's right. So I don't know. That's, that's my question. I like it. Yeah. Something that not a lot of people uh, talk about in professional sports with athletes. It feels like it's always black and white. It's really not. So that, that's, no. yeah, that's terrific. We're looking forward to uh, asking Grayson that, especially a guy who's really close to uh, reaching the majors. Mike, this was so much fun reflecting back, looking ahead, going into the weeds with game prep. We, I mean, we're eating it up here. So thanks for your time. Yeah. Anytime. Great job, Borzy, man. Wish you well in the future, man. You, you deserve a job somewhere. You can still help a lot of organizations. Maybe broadcasting. Who knows? You know, you... Maybe put in a word for me there at ESPN. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> all right. Thanks, guys. David, I'm going to go all the way back to the beginning of this because he, he gave a pretty interesting memory of you getting up in front of the team and delivering a, a pretty powerful speech. Do you remember the exact context of that pep talk, so to speak, what, what was it? What was the nature of that? I think the nature of, of that particular team meeting was, is that we were uh, off to a very slow start, even though it was only the first week of the season, George Steinbrenner was still fully in control of that team. And we felt like, and we had heard whispers that changes could be coming if we don't turn it around in a hurry and jobs were on the line. And so that was just kind of a, a meeting where it was a classic Joe Torrey meeting where he went around the room and, and allowed anybody to speak or almost challenged guys to speak, you know, Hey, O'Neill, you got something to say, you know, on, on down, on down the road, Andy Petty, do you have something to say? And so when it got to me, I had something to say, and, you know, I did my best uh, to emphasize, you know, the, what I knew about the New York market, having played in New York, the majority of my career, both with the Mets and the Yankees, I knew the drumbeat, uh, when, when, when the media starts to get on a story and there was already talk about who would be Joe Torrey's successor at that point. And that's when I, you know, I put it on the line. Hey, hey, you know, we're playing for each other. Jobs are on the line here. We all know who our owner is, you know, and if we don't turn this around, changes are going to be made and who knows what direction we'll go from that point on. So 
Yeah, yeah. Sometimes those meetings are overrated, and we went out and won a game that night and went on a roll after that. So how, how you know, this goes down to how do you quantify clubhouse chemistry? How do you what, what does an internal meeting really mean? It's the human element that's just so hard to put a number on, and people remember that. And you know, maybe it was motivational for a lot of guys. Maybe it crystallized things. Maybe it brought us together. But I'd like to think that it was you know it was impactful. But you know, who knows really? How do, how do you really put your finger on something like that? We asked Mike at the end what he'd like to do next in baseball. Was, I think he was kind of modest in in his answer there. You've know you know him pretty well though. Do you think he has aspirations of managing one day? I think he has a tremendous skill set. You know, he is, you know, we talk about analytics and understanding analytics. And he certainly continued his education throughout the years and and was at the forefront of learning some of the new systems and the development of these internal systems, these these databases that our proprietary information and data that each team is developing nowadays. And he has been on the forefront of those. So his skill set is tremendous in terms of understanding that part of the game. But to me, the even stronger skill set he has is the interpretation of that data because he was a minor league catcher. He was a professional ball player. He worked his way up through the ranks. He was at low man on the totem pole. Like he said, kind of keep your mouth shut and you, you catch your bullpens. And if somebody speaks to you or ask you your opinion, then maybe you pipe up, but what a, what a development process he had and he learned how to interpret those things. And to me, that's the most important thing you can have in an organization nowadays. And obviously they have very strong uh, skill sets in, in the front offices nowadays in terms of biomechanics or sabermetrics or analytics, any, any subset of analytics you want, but how do you get that information to the players and how do you interpret it? How do you uh, analyze it? How do you put it into to terms that players understand. And that's the strength of Mike Borzello. That's what I say. He, he has that skill set of understanding the analytics, but understanding the player side as well. And being able to, to bridge the gap between the two and interpret that knowledge and, and that information. It's such a valuable role in the game today, that liaison between the clubhouse and the research and development department. I think clubs are on a never ending search to find that perfect voice uh, for those for those roles to kind of bridge those two departments for sure. All right, James, this week in pitching history, what do you have for us? All right. Two things. One good one. Not so good. Um, March 22nd, 2017, five years ago, Tuesday, team USA wins the world baseball classic. Marcus Stroman takes a no hitter into the seventh, finishing with six innings of one hit shutout ball and the U S beats Puerto Rico, eight, nothing at Dodger stadium. It was the first time the U S won it. Japan won the first two in 2006 and 2009. The Dominican Republic won in 2013. USA in 2017. It was canceled due to COVID in 2021, but it's scheduled to return in 2023. I love the WBC. Transitioning to something not so great. Um, March 25th, 2001, 21 years ago, Friday, Randy Johnson kills a bird with a pitch in a spring training game. The unluckiest dove, whoever doved, uh, just an explosion of feathers, just very unfortunate and uh, really a, a one in a billion shot. It was ruled a no pitch, by the way. I didn't know that last part. Uh, yeah, you, you see that all the time on YouTube. Uh, I think in a less sensitive time, probably on blooper reels. I don't think it makes the rounds there anymore. But, uh, but as far as the World Baseball Classic, I I am with you, James. I love it. It, it has like that October feel, that October suspense because there's something on the line and it's coming. It's happening in March. I uh, can't beat that. That was that was the Adam Jones grab at the wall, right? 
It was at, earlier at in that tournament? same tournament. Yeah. Yeah. You a big fan of the WBC, David? Oh, yes. I mean, that, I was part of the Players Association when we talked about these sorts of things, how great it would be. Who Nobody could predict who would win. You know, Venezuela would have a great team. The Dominican Republic would have a great team. Japan would have a great team. So, yeah, on down the list, uh, you know, it, it really is baseball more than any other sport encompasses so many different countries you know even though maybe you if you're not a big baseball fan maybe you're not aware of that to to a certain extent but the thing i also noticed too is the genuine emotion from a lot of the players when you watch the dominican republic team when they won a couple of years ago or a few year a few series ago uh you know that that genuine emotion kind of changed the way we looked at the game you know that that authentic emotion is okay to show you know, the old school, don't show up your opponent or don't bat flip or don't do this or don't do that. Repress your emotions. I think the World Baseball Classic has been a big driver of allowing and showing and educating authentic emotions. Good for the game. It grows the game. People want to see that. The younger generation definitely wants to see that. And the old school notion of uh, no, 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 you can't do that. WBC has been instrumental in changing a lot of people's minds in that regard. I think it also showcased a country like uh, or territory like the Netherlands with Curacao and all the talent that a squad like that has. Because before the WBC, you you know you had an idea of the Andrew Joneses and players like that. But it, I think the World Baseball Classic put them on on the main stage, the platform to show how much talent they are they are producing in, in Curacao and with the Netherlands and that representation um all right three up three down here guys and look once the regular season starts we're changing three up three down that was been you know that's been the plan this entire time so these are the last couple of weeks of three up three down as we know it once the season gets rolling we're going to focus on a pitcher each of us are going to give a pitcher who we think these listeners should focus in on more and keep an eye out for so right now it's still the status quo, so to speak, pick up a, a topic that we kind of want to shed some light on. So, uh, David, how about how about you lead us off here? You know, I think it's interesting, even though a lot of the, the you know, and this is just coming. I'm just thinking of this right now. So I'm going to throw it on you guys. Uh, the, the rules changes that aren't happening yet, but are going to happen. You know, we, I even saw something on the MLB network where Mike Zanino was using an earpiece already and he could. You know, we're already going to the catcher signals then really trying to speed up the game in that regard. And he, he had kind of favorable reviews of it. He's got a wristband. He can buzz the pitch right to the pitcher. There's no signs, especially with men on base. He said it was a noticeable increase in the pace of play along with a pitcher's clock, you know, a hitter's clock. I'd rather call it the hitter's <laughs> clock rather than a pitcher's clock, but I'm biased. Uh, the bigger bases, the, the, the infielders and the, the banning of the shift is going to come. So all the, you know, I'm trying to trying to think about, how the impact collectively of all these rules together and which ones will actually have the most impact. Uh, I really do believe now that the crispness of the game, the pace of play can really be impacted by some of these rules collectively together. And it's going to be interesting to follow some of these experiments in the minor leagues and not to mention, not the least of which is robo umps, whether you like it or not, it's coming. I don't know exactly when it's going to be implemented, but it's coming. So, uh, you know, get ready. Well, the time to do it is in the minor leagues, you know, put your foot in the pool, see how it goes. It's a low stakes environment to test things out and see what sticks and what doesn't. 
I, I saw the the news of what Zanina was doing and, and the contraptions that they the Rays were using. Do you think other teams are going to be using that stuff during exhibition play? Or is this just the, the Rays kind of being out in front of everything? I think there was uh, at least one other team that they mentioned in that report on the MLB network that was experimenting with it uh, this spring as well to see, you know, to kind of work through the kinks and see how, you know, how it came through. Now Zanino's a, a veteran catcher. So yeah, I, I, he has credibility and he had pretty, pretty positive reviews on it in terms of let's go get in the box, mm-hmm. swing the bat. And in particular with men on base, we've seen that's when the game really tends to slow down. It naturally slows down anyway. If you've got a, a running threat, you know, a stolen base threat or pickoff moves or things like that. But with a man on second base and recent history with all the espionage going on and sign stealing and, gamesmanship or what's gamesmanship and, and what's technologically, you know, uh, espionage, uh, so to speak. So yeah, maybe that's an answer. That's when the game really slows down. You get multiple signs, infielders are moving around, catcher doesn't put down the right sign. The pitcher shakes them off. That really slows down the game. Now you've got to go through a whole nother sequence of signs. And yeah, that, that's interesting to me to, to attack that part of the game and, and see if, if it really does help. And, if it helps the crispness and the overall pace of play, then you know, I'm kind of for it at this point. All right, James, what do you have? Three up, three down. The Braves signing Kenley Jansen, uh, a, a mainstay of the Dodgers during their run in the, uh, in the 2010s and early 2020s, 350 career saves, and now he's going to Atlanta. It'll be weird to see him in a different uniform, but the Braves bullpen is going to be absolutely loaded. They were such a big part of their championship run in October, and now just running down the list, Kenley Jansen, Will Smith, Tyler Matzik, our old pal A.J. Minter, Luke Jackson, and they also added Colin McHugh, who I think is a fantastic pickup as well. You put their top six up against pretty much any of the other top six relief uh, relievers uh, on the depth chart against any team, uh, the Braves are going to be formidable in late in the game. Loaded pen, couldn't agree more. I thought Colin McHugh was arguably one of the biggest steals of the offseason to to whatever team he went to and he ends up going to Atlanta and look the NL East despite the Mets making huge moves that division is going to be tight in my opinion between the Mets big moves they're changing leadership with Buck now in the manager spot but the Braves offsetting Freddie Freeman's departure with Matt Olson's addition add into the bullpen and then the Phillies feels like they're just going to slug their way to the postseason. They made some additions to their bullpen, but here we go with an expanded postseason. They could probably hit their way into October. It's, it's a great point. And it just shows you the pressure. A lot of these organizations are under on keeping up with the Joneses, so to speak, if you're the Philadelphia Phillies and you, you know, you got to contend with the Braves and what James just said about their incredible bullpen, you got a tough division, you got the Mets, you got a new sheriff in town on the ownership side and Steve Cohen, he actually has his own tax threshold named after him already. So yeah, if you're the Phillies, what are you going to do? Well, you get, you got to, you got to catch up. You got to make some hay and then they're going to try to slug their way through it with Schwarber and Castellanos. Uh, it'd be fun to watch offensively with Bryce Harper right in the middle of that crew and the, you know, Bryce Harper looks like a pretty good signing right now. All of a sudden, after sure does. all that talk, his average annual value, I, you, you know, we'll see on the back end. But, wow, he's he's lived up to every bit of his end of the bargain uh, as Bryce Harper. So, yeah, they're going to be a fun offensive team to watch this year. I mentioned Matt Olson's name. He was traded 
last week to Atlanta. Guys, did you hear about the curse of Trader Joe's in Arizona last week? No. No? Okay, so here we go. Oh, wait, wait. Maybe I did hear something well, about Well, the, the John Boy media crew, they, yes. they were out in Arizona at the Topps Bun House, and I mean, we, we set up a whole pad with a bunch of games. There is ping pong, blitz ball. There is chip and putt, uh, cornhole, Mario Kart tournaments, and a bunch of players came by the John Boy media crew, whether it was Trevor Pluth, Jimmy and Jake, Chris Rose, Joe's McFly. They went out, you know, to, to spring training sites. Jerry Blevins was there as well. And between some of the players coming over and the crew going out to spring training sites, Joe's McFly, part of the John Boy media crew, I think he had the cursed handshake because you take a look at the players that came over and interacted with, with Joe's. You had Matt Olson coming over. Matt Chapman came over. You had Amir Garrett come over. And then Joe's went out to Red's camp. He may have taken the last picture with Jesse Winker as a Cincinnati Red. Joe's poses with Winker. And maybe 15 minutes later, he's dealt over to Seattle. The other guys come over to the house and within 24 to 36 hours, they're out of town as well. It was wild. I think the last player that came over, Taylor Trammell, the, the young outfielder for the Mariners, everyone was joking. Hey, do you want Joe's to stay on the other side of the house? Or, you know, is there uh, is, is there a situation that you're not happy with in Seattle? We can arrange a meet here. So a lot of players came over. The Whit Merrifields, Evan Longoria, our, our former guest, Josh Hader, came over and yeah, Joe's had a, he had some type of power there that, that was going on. He had four players that he met and they were subsequently traded within like a day. Wild stuff. So he gets the nickname Trader Joe's. And we're, we're probably not going to see anything like that anymore because of the, the nature of this offseason coming out of the lockout, big moves being made in March. It was just a, a, a whirlwind of everything kind of combusting in mid-March here in the baseball world. It, that just tells me too that John Boy Media, wherever they are, is the place to be. You know, yeah. you're drawing some big stars, some big names around. Things are going to happen. So yeah, that's that's impressive uh, that you drew in the, that those biggest stars. You know, to wherever you set up camp out there. So yes, another another uh, a notch in the John Boy Media post as they continue their ascent. It was wild having like Amir Garrett come over. He came over with T.J. Antone, another pitcher, ground ball specialist for the Reds, and I mean they were playing ping pong late at night and like less than 12 hours. That was like the morning talk. Yo, did you just see Amir Garrett got traded to Kansas city? He was, he was just here. Wild, wild stuff. But uh, yeah, it was a good time. A lot of content still to be released from, from that Arizona trip. So if you missed it, you want to make sure that you keep an eye out on the uh, John boy media platforms for the uh, tops bunt house in Arizona guys. That's going to do it for us here this week. We are getting closer to opening day. We cannot wait. Big thanks to Mike Borzello for coming on the show this week. Big thanks, as always, to our great producer, Dan Rourke. New episodes of the show, they drop each and every Tuesday. Please rate, review, and subscribe. It is the best way that you can show your support for this show. Tone the Slab, Pitching with David Cohn, is a production of John Boy Media. We'll talk to you next week, everybody.